After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. Am I saying that right? Bethesda. Bethesda. Which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, while I am going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said that to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Great. Thank you. All right. This is the word of the Lord. I'm just going to pray once again and just ask Jesus to teach us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to read your word. Um, God, it is possible in the midst of our sin to read about Jesus and still miss Jesus. Um, And so, Lord, would you open our eyes today that we might see you? Um, God, I pray also that, that this text reads us this morning that you would convict us where we need it, you would encourage us where we need it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I, um, when I was in college, I was just kind of doing, some, doing nothing one day, and all of a sudden I just got this massive pain in like my back. Um, and it was this weird pain of like, maybe I just like tweaked something and it just, it's, it wouldn't go away until eventually it just became this like debilitating, excruciating pain. Uh, and I, I think I was home, my dad was there and I was like, dad, I need to go to the hospital. Um, and I said, I, I'm pretty sure I have kidney stones. And he was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? I just, there was like something in me where I was like, I think I have kidney stones. I never had it before, but I was just like, I think I had it. And, uh, and I, and we drove to the hospital and sure enough, I had, I had kidney stones which was like, honestly, one of the most painful things I've ever felt. Just horrific pain. I'm not saying that I say this, but people say this, that for, uh, they, they say that it is, <laughs> I've heard it said that it's basically the equivalent of labor pain. I, that's just what I've been told. I'm not, I'm just relaying information to you. Um, it's, I don't think it's true. But anyway, so I, I've been through that experience, and so about two years um, ago, uh, all of a sudden I, I was getting this back pain, and I was like, oh no, here we go. Like, I think kidney stones are coming back. 
And so like this back pain is not going away. It's, it's in like the same spot. It's a very recognizable kind of pain. And so I'm convinced. I'm like, you know what? I, I think I have kidney stones. It's coming. And I'm like bracing for the freight train of pain that's about to come. And so I, I turn to my wife. I'm like, Jackie, I need to go. We need to go to, to, to uh, the hospital. And so we're having that conversation of like, are we ready to pay for the ER bill? Is this worth the ER bill? Can we do urgent care? What can we do? I'm like, okay, it's, it's, I think we can do urgent care. And so we go to urgent care and um, I've shared this with you before, but uh, I tend to overreact on like physical pain when it, when it comes initially. And so my wife is kind of like, you know, letting, like feeling this out, like, are you overreacting? And I'm, I'm getting offended. Like, how dare you? I have kidney stones. Like, have compassion on me. And so we go to the, uh, the urgent care and I wait forever and I'm like in pain. And, um, and they finally call me back and I just say to the, uh, to the nurse or the doctor, whoever it was, I was just like, I have kidney stones. You need to like do a, whatever you do, a CT scan. Or whatever. I have kidney stones. That's what it is. Just help me figure this, figure this out. And so, you know, they, they take the samples that they need to take. And she comes back. She's like, you don't have kidney stones. It's like, what? What's wrong with me then? Is it worse? She goes, I think you just have back pain, like muscle pain. And I'm like, what? Like, you too? Like, I have kidney stones. Um, but it was this like foolish moment for me where I'm like, hey, doc, listen, here's what's wrong with me. All right. I have kidney stones. She's like, no, you're just starting to get old and you have back pain. All right. But we all have this belief about what we think is actually wrong, mostly with, with the world. We all have this belief of like, look, here's the deal. This is the problem. And we could all probably go around and share what we think the great problem of the world is and all get in a fight right? Because we all have our own opinions of what actually is wrong with the world, what we need saving from. And the truth is we actually all have that belief about what's actually wrong in our life too. Not just out there, but when we look at our own lives, we all have a belief about what's the real problem in my life. What's the thing that, man, I, this is the thing I really need saving from. Maybe it's a bad relationship for you. That's, the, that's, my, that's my main problem. It's this, this toxic relationship. Or maybe it's unmet hopes and dreams in your life of, and if these, if these things could just happen for me, things would, be, things would be well. Maybe for you it's some kind of physical or emotional ailment, and that is the greatest problem. That's what I need saving from. Maybe for you it's just a general lack of, of happiness. But we all have an idea of what that is. And we kind of essentially take it to the Lord of like, hey God, here's what's wrong. Here is the biggest problem, not just in the world. Here's the biggest problem in my life. Here's what I need saving from. If you could step in and remedy this, everything would be better. The Bible tells us that the greatest problem we all need saving from is ourselves and the sin that infects us. And yet, here's the beauty of Jesus. Jesus cares about all of it. Jesus cares about the greatest problem of, of sin in the world and sin in your heart, but he also cares about all the other problems, all of the brokenness, all of the broken systems, all of the broken relationships. He cares about all of it, the hurt and the pain that we carry, all of the sickness and, and all of the trauma. He cares about all of it. Jesus doesn't draw some line in the sand to say, I only care about the, the pain and the hurt and the stuff that's just clear sin in your life and all the other things is just kind of whatever, they're not as important. He cares about all of it. 
And the truth is, ultimately, we could look at everything broken in the world, every amount of suffering and sickness and trauma and pain and all of it, and we can say, actually, all of it comes from sin. All of it is sin just spreading and ravaging all of God's creation. And Jesus is a Savior who's committed to rescuing His people from all of it. As we continue in John chapter 5 today, we come across a man with deep suffering. A guy that longs to be healed. A guy that longs to be saved. And as we come to this story, John's not really, as an author, he's not really particularly interested in in telling a a chronological story of Jesus' life. That's usually the way we do history now in our world, in our context. We tell history through a, a chronological lens. That's not the way ancient history tends to be told. And John's not particularly interested in saying Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and tell it in order. He's actually telling us something more theological. That, that he, he's more concerned about themes. And so he's essentially coming to us in John 5 and saying, now here's the next thing I want to tell you about Jesus, the time he interacted with a lame man. He's not just saying this is the next thing that happened. John's trying to reveal to us something about Jesus. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He tells us it's the time of a feast. We don't know particularly which one, but Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he comes to this pool. And it tells us right off the bat, there were a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. I want you to just try to picture this scene mentally for a moment. There's this pool, and all around it is a lot of sickness and suffering and brokenness. Blind people, lame, paralyzed, all kinds of ailments. And there's this pool that sits here, and it's surrounded by people whose entire lives have now become defined by suffering. Some of them may be born this way. Some of them may be the cause of some sort of accident. But they're all gathered around this pool, and the historians say that this pool was most likely, um, it was most likely filled by, by a nearby spring. And so every once in a while, this spring would gush, and the water would kind of bubble up and stir. And the thought among the people was that, that when that happened, some sort of angel was coming down and stirring up the waters. And that the first person to get into the pool after this invisible, mysterious angel comes and stirs up the waters. The first one in would be healed. And we don't actually seem to have any record of that ever actually happening, but it, it was the superstition of the day. And so these people, with no other options left but to sit by a pool and wait for it to bubble up and hopefully beat everyone else in, that's their option for healing. So you can kind of imagine this scene. It feels like it's probably a a fairly sad place. You imagine everyone has fixed their eyes on the water. Don't look at anything else. You might miss the first signs of the bubbles and then lose your opportunity. So you just kind of imagine everyone stares at this water. And you can kind of picture the scene when it bubbles up, right? Friends that are with those that are paralyzed, picking someone up and rushing towards the water or blind people stumbling around trying to find their way into the pool. I imagine that some people fall into the pool that are lame and and then can't get out of the pool. And it it just feels like a place where there's a lot of pain and sadness and brokenness. And Jesus, as he enters into Jerusalem, comes here. 
It tells us that he finds a man who's been lame for 38 years. Now, Jesus doesn't need to go here, but he does. We've seen this pattern in Jesus' life already, right? When we looked in John chapter 4, when Jesus passed through Samaria to go engage with someone considered probably culturally the most least important person in existence, a Samaritan woman who's a sinner, and yet he goes there because he says, I have to go here because he wants to bring salvation there. Jesus comes to this pool because he wants to, and he finds a man who's been lame for 38 years. And it could be easy for us to breeze past this, but I think that there's something important for us to see here, that Jesus sees this man and he cares about his suffering. He sees him in his 38 years. He sees it. He cares about it. In fact, this is consistent with Jesus. We see Isaiah, who would prophesy about Jesus, calls, says this about Jesus, that he is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus knows suffering. He cares about those that are suffering. All right, we've seen all, we've talked about this often, that all throughout the Old Testament, God tells his people, hey, I have a special care for four groups of people, the, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, and the poor. My heart especially goes out towards them. Therefore, my people, your hearts should go out towards them. God cares about those that are suffering, which means he sees you in your suffering. He cares about the pain in your life. Your suffering isn't unseen, no matter what kind it is, physical, emotional, psychological. He cares about it. There's been this odd wave in, in Christian circles to say things like, man, just preach the gospel. Don't care about people's actual needs. What they need most is saving from sin, so therefore, don't worry about that stuff. Just preach the gospel. And it creates a, a false dichotomy. They're, they're, those things are not enemies. We don't need to pit those things against one another. We don't need to reconcile those things. They're, they're friends. They go together. Jesus did both. Jesus brought the good news of the gospel and also cared for people's sufferings. If he cares about both of those things, we should too. If it's good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. Jesus does both here. And he asks this man this question in verse 6. He says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Or maybe more, more literally, it's, he says this, do you want to become well? Do you want to become well? It might seem like an odd question to us. It sh I, I think it did to this man. Because look at his answer. Do you want to become well? The sick man said, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, going another steps down before me. Essentially saying to Jesus, Yeah, why would I be here? If I don't want to become well, why, why do you think I'm sitting by the pool? Are you interested in helping me? Because I have no one to put me in. If you're here to help put me in, yes, I'll take your help. Why do you think I'm here? But he gives further insight into his suffering. He says, I have no one. And so not only is this man suffering, not only has he been 38 years lame, but now he sits by a pool that seems to promise healing to him, but he has no one. No one that advocates for him. No one that sits with him. 
no one that cares for him. He's alone. So on top of his suffering, add loneliness. Jesus comes and says, do you want to become well? So why ask him this question? Of course he wants to to be well. Well, I think Jesus is asking something a lot deeper than just what's on the surface, and it's kind of wrapped up in this word become. And I, and I use that, that word become because in the original languages, that's the word that John uses when he writes. He says, do you want to become well? And as we go through the book of John, we, we read it in English, but if we could understand the language that John writes in, we would actually see this word become show up all over the place throughout the gospel of John. It's a very significant word to John. Let me just give you a few examples of it. Right at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, he tells us that all things became into existence by the Word. He uses that word, became. All things became through the power of the Word. He tells us that John the Baptist, when he arrives on the scene, that John the Baptist's arrival as the forerunner to Jesus, that John the Baptist became by God's plan and by God's design. Or it tells us in, in John 1.12 that the Word of God, that Jesus gives the right to us to become children of God. It tells us also that the Word became flesh. It tells us that grace and truth became through Jesus. That the water became wine. When Jesus is talking with Nicodemus and talks about the need to be born from above, Nicodemus asks the question, how can these things become Or in John 4, Jesus tells the woman at the well that this living water I offer you will become in you a well that bubbles up to eternal life. This word become, for the writer of this book, is a very important word, and it captures the transformative power and work of Jesus. That when something becomes in the Gospel of John, it's attributed to the power of Jesus. It's not just happenstance, it's not just random, it's not just someone's decision. It is the transforming, powerful work of God to do something. It shows us that Jesus is actually asking this man something so much bigger than if he just wants to walk again. He's after something a lot deeper. You see, in John 4, the previous chapter we were just in, Jesus was standing by a well And while he was by that well, he was offering water that would become a better well. And now he stands by a pool of healing, and Jesus is offering a healing that will become a better wellness to this man than anything this pool could provide. And so he asks, do you want to become well? And the irony is, is I I picture this man answering this question to Jesus without taking his eyes off off the water. Because to take your eyes off of that water is to lose any advantage you could ever have of getting in there. So I imagine Jesus walks up to this man and says, do you want to become well? And the text doesn't tell us this, but I picture this man not moving his gaze off that water, but talking to Jesus to say, I don't have anyone. But if you're going to help put me in the water, sure, let's do it. And so while Jesus is asking if he wants to become well, the irony is is this man is still only trusting in the water when the Word who's spoken creation into existence stands next to him asking him if he wants to become well. He's still looking to the wrong things for healing and life, just like we do. 
We're still eyes fixed on all the things that we think are going to fix the problems that we think we really have in our life. We fix our eyes and think, yeah, if Jesus is going to help us and bring healing and bring wellness, he's going to do it through the waters. Sure, Jesus, I'll take your help. Help get me into the waters. Sure, Jesus, I'll take your help in my life. Just give me the significance in my, in my job that I'm longing for, because if I can have that and you can help me get it, game on. We're going to be in a much better place. If you could just bring a deeper joy and satisfaction in things, then, then, then yeah, help me out, Jesus. If you could just help me in this relationship or, or just give me that thing I've been missing, yeah, Jesus, come along. The man doesn't quite pick up on the depth of what Jesus is asking him or what he can do. He's doing what John Calvin says, and it's what we all do, is we limit God's power to our own ideas. We limit God's power to our own ideas. It's, a, it's actually really good news that God tends to do things way outside of our scope, way outside of our ideas. In fact, the cross would have never been our idea of victory. The cross was not, the people of this day, it was not their idea of what a Savior would do, of what a Messiah would do. Their idea was, yeah, bring the Messiah, come on. Let's take out the big bad enemy that oppresses us. Let's take out Rome who oppresses all of the Jewish people. That's where we'll bring salvation and victory. But Jesus says, no, I come to do something that you don't even understand. I come to bring healing and victory and rescue in a way you can't even comprehend. And Jesus wants to do something in this man's life that's far beyond the waters. So he says, get up, take up your bed and walk. Those are crazy words. Get up, take up your bed and walk. And it tells us at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and he walked. Again, Jesus heals somebody with his word. He doesn't even touch him. He doesn't help him up. He just speaks a word and it happens. This is who Jesus is. He speaks a word and all of creation comes into existence. He speaks a word and people are healed. And he tells him to pick up his mat which in one way is to show this man's fully healed. This is not like a gradual process. It's in a moment he's healed. This man now carries the thing that carried him. But Jesus is also doing something very public here because John tells us at the end of verse 9, now that day was the Sabbath, to which we all go, uh-oh. That day was the Sabbath, which actually set up pretty significant controversy that would go on for a long time. It tells us in the very next verse, the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. First of all, literally no mention of the miraculous healing. Like, hey, you're the guy that's been sitting on the ground for 40 years. Now you're walking. That's amazing. Oh, by the way, don't pick up your mat. No, no, it's just like, hey, it's the Sabbath. Don't pick up your mat. No mention of the healing whatsoever. This is somewhat of an aside, but just in this brief sentence right here, you can see 
the difference between who Jesus reveals himself to be and then the religious systems of the day. Jesus saw a man and cared about his suffering, spoke to him like a person, cared about him. The religious system said, you're breaking the rules. We don't care about you. We just care about your adherence to the system. But the truth is, if you know the law from the Old Testament, what this man's doing probably actually isn't against God's law. What's been commanded throughout the Old Testament about the Sabbath is to cease from work. And the general consensus had been that that means you cease from your customary employment. Whatever you do for a living, for your work, for your wage, you cease from doing that for the day. You remember the Sabbath. You remember the presence of God among you and you rest. But the rabbis had taken this idea and added a whole bunch of stuff onto it. In fact, they added 39 categories of work that were forbidden, one of which was carrying anything. So the, the, the irony of this is the Sabbath, which was intended for rest, became a burden, became like work. It wasn't against God's law. It was against the traditions that had been set up by the rabbis and the Jewish system of the day. So actually, this man wasn't breaking God's law. He was breaking the traditions of the Jewish system. But those two had become so married to one another that you could not see where one started and another ended. In fact, Jesus says this in, um, in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus tells the Pharisees, the religious leaders, that they break God's commands in favor of following their own traditions. And here's what he says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So the leaders were teaching the traditions as commands from God. So Jesus says, and that's what's happening here. They're saying, you're breaking the law. Actually, they're just breaking the traditions. They're not breaking God's law. And so rather than be interested in this man's healing, rather than investigate who Jesus might be, they're furious that the traditions are being scoffed at. And so they, they ask, who, who told you to do this? Because for them, it's far, they're far more interested in the man who's going around telling others to break the tra traditions than just the one man who broke it. So they say, who did this? Who told you to do, to do this? What's, what's interesting, the man doesn't know. I find that really interesting. So many healings we see throughout Jesus' life, People are healed and then they respond in worship to Jesus. We get no sense of that from this man. He doesn't even know who it is. Until at some point later, Jesus comes and finds this man in the temple. Again, we see the intentionality of Jesus, the care, the pursuit after this man. He finds him in the temple. He says this, See, you are well. You have become well. And then he says, Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, many go from here and start arguing for the connection between sin and suffering. That maybe Jesus was saying to this man that the reason why he was, he was lame for 38 years had to do with his sin. Now, certainly I think that there are instances where that's the case, whether by natural consequence 
or by the Lord's loving discipline that sometimes there is suffering in our life that is a result of sin, right? Sometimes we just do things that are sinful and there are natural consequences for doing stupid, sinful things. Sometimes it's the Lord's loving, gentle hand of discipline for those that He loves, right? I don't think Jesus is saying here or the Bible teaches that all instances of sickness and sin are because you are sinning and not obeying God. Therefore, if you would just obey God, you'd be healed. That's a prosperity gospel. That's a false gospel. Here's what I think Jesus is saying to him. I think he's inviting him to believe, to believe in who he is. Because for John, when John uses the word sin, he defines it by not believing in Jesus. I'm not going to go through these this morning, but I'll, I'll throw them down if you want to write them down. You could look at John 8, 24, John 15, 24, John 16, 9. In all these instances, John describes sin as not believing in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior. And so I think what Jesus is saying to this man is this, believe in me as the Messiah or something far worse will become of you. You thought being lame for 38 years was awful suffering. If you don't turn to me and believe, there's something infinitely worse coming. I think Jesus is talking about the judgment of God for his sins. That if he, if he rejects Jesus as the Messiah, he will suffer eternally in hell for his sins. And that's not to trivialize his 38 years of suffering. It's actually just to put hell in its proper context. To say, this might be the worst form of suffering you can imagine on earth, but hell is infinitely worse. I think he's inviting him into something much deeper, to believe in who Jesus is. Because we talked about this last week, right? The greater purpose of the miracles is not just to give us blessings on earth, but to reveal to us who Jesus is so that we might see him and know him and trust him and follow him and believe in him. So Jesus makes this man become well, but he's still concerned what will become of him now that he's physically well. Because we know this, our, our suffering can turn our eyes to the Lord, can it not? But there's a danger that when the suffering is relieved, the vision to see our neediness is gone. I want to read for us, this is a quote from C.S. Lewis from a book he writes called The Problem of Pain. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's, it's worth it. Here's what he says. He says, The human spirit will not even begin to surrender as long as all seems to be well with it. Now, error and sin both have this property, that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. They are a masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. And pain is not only immediately recognizable evil, but evil that's impossible to ignore. We can rest content in our sins and in our stupidities. 
And anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can even ignore pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. We know this intuitively. There is something about pain and suffering that alerts us to the fact something is not right. I need help. And it almost opens up our ears to where we can hear the Lord. And I think Jesus is concerned for this man that now his suffering is gone. His vision to see that he needs anything is now blinded. And so he warns him to say, believe in me or suffering far worse than you ever knew is coming. Jesus is saying, don't reject the greater thing in favor of the lesser. Don't reject the greater healing in favor of the lesser one. Don't be content just to eradicate suffering in your life. Come to me and allow me to eradicate sin in your life. Don't just take Jesus, the physical healer, but reject Jesus, the crucified and risen Savior. Now, the truth is, I know that there's pain in this place, in this room. There's some of us that may, may not be lame for 38 years, but we know what this man feels like. We know what it's like to carry with us pain and suffering and feel like there's It's never going away. It defines me. There is is an invitation for us, a question for us of of will we take our, our pain and our hurt and our suffering to Jesus or will we just hope in the waters? But there's also a question for us of can we be honest and say, do we, do we only want the lesser healing? Would we be content with Jesus just coming in and, and bringing the lesser healing and not the greater one? Or do we also want the greater? Do we want to answer Jesus' question, do you want to become well? Is our, is our answer to that Yes. the beauty of Jesus. Jesus can bring ultimate healing to our pain because He received ultimate pain for our healing. Jesus went to the cross to receive the pain for our sins. So that He can bring healing in our lives. See, Jesus cares about all the suffering in us. He cares about the man's inability to walk, but He also cares about the man's Inability to trust in Jesus. Inability to believe. He cares about both. And he meets the lesser need to open up this man's eyes to his greater need. That he needs a Savior. And one of the ways I think Jesus brings this kind of deeper healing into our lives is he brings the gospel to the deepest, darkest places of our hearts. 
It's there that I believe I've seen him do it. He can bring exact healing, true healing to the deepest of places, the places we think are, are too far gone. So maybe trauma has ravaged you. Jesus can meet you there. Maybe sin has haunted you. Jesus can meet you there. Jesus has compassion on us. A compassion that goes much deeper than ours does for ourselves. He wants to bring the deepest healing into your life. He wants to bring the good news of who He is and what He's done, not just to your circumstances, but to the depths of your soul. To the places where, where you have experienced nothing but rejection. He wants to bring the good news of the gospel that says, even if everyone else has rejected you, Jesus has chosen you. He wants to bring the truth all the way there to the place of shame where you feel like this is just who I am. These are the things that I've done. These are the things that have been done to me. Therefore, this is who I am. I am bad. I am unwanted. I am used. I'm too much of a burden. And he wants to speak words of life to that place to say, no, you aren't. Here's who I say you are. You are loved. You are made new. You are not defined by what you do but by what I've done for you. Maybe you have been, feel like your life has been defined by loss or grief. And Jesus wants to speak words of healing to that place. To say, I know what that feels like. And yet I'll take care of you. Though your hands feel empty, I will fill them. I will be good to you. I will work all things out for your good. No matter what it is, I, I believe that Jesus wants to bring the truth of who He is and what He's done to the deepest, darkest places so that it doesn't just change how we feel in our circumstances, but changes the depths of who we are, gives us a better, deeper healing to where we can say to Jesus, yes, I want to become well. Jesus is telling this man that there is a spiritual wellness that comes through believing in him. Right? It's what John said is the purpose of writing this book. He says, I write this book that you may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you would believe in him and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. That by believing in me, you would have a life and a wellness that reaches far beyond being able to walk. It's an invitation to belief. But there's still a whole lot of suffering that, that remains. A whole lot of physical suffering that we experience walking this earth where we can say, yes, I, I want to be made well, Jesus, but there's still so much pain here. And we can't, we can't say to one another that, well, Jesus wants to bring healing to all the pain in your life. Just believe in Him and He'll take away all the suffering. No, we, we know that's not the case. We won't know true, full wellness this side of glory until He returns. 
But what Jesus began in this ministry, we start to taste in the gospel. We'll ultimately know when we join him in heaven. It's what Isaiah 35 says. It says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. We get tastes and glimpses of that right now. But that day of fullness where that we walk in that is coming when Jesus returns. When, when the waters break forth in the desert. When there's true and deep and lasting healing. And that's what Jesus is inviting this man into. And he seems entirely uninterested. He seems to be content with the lesser healing and rejects the invitation to become well. Because immediately after Jesus invites him into into this, he turns around back to the Jews and says, I found out who it is, it's Jesus. And then this passage closes says, this is why the Jews were persecuting, persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus gives an answer to defend why he's working on the Sabbath. And he says, my father's working, so I am too. And we're going to get into more of this next week. But Jesus' defense of his work on the Sabbath is, it's not a rebuke of their legalism. It's not a rebuke of their systems, though he could have, and he does elsewhere. Here, his defense for working on the Sabbath is his relationship with the Father. He's saying, I have a unique relationship with the Father. I am the unique son sent from the Father. My work is the same as his work. He hasn't stopped working, so I keep working. There was a, a, a consensus that God didn't take a rest on the Sabbath, because if he did, the universe would stop functioning. And so for Jesus to say, I'm still working because my father's working, his work is my work, they interpreted that correctly. He was saying he was equal with the father. And we'll get into that next week. But John is showing us the authority of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. To say he has the power in a word to heal, to heal not just your suffering, but to heal your soul. To bring life to places of death with just a word. And he invites us like he does this man. Believe in me. Trust in me. And the greatest suffering that is coming will not touch you. It won't touch you. It's in accordance with what Paul tells us. We'll close with this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, We do not lose heart. Even though our outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know in this very moment you see the suffering in this room. And much like you did with this man in this story, you don't look at our suffering and just say, yeah, let's ignore that and just talk about sin. You care about all of it. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us 
hear your invitation to come to you with all of our suffering. Lord, if we need healing, if we feel like this man, would you give us the faith to come to you and plead with you and ask you and beg of you to heal? But God, we also hear your invitation to become well. To have the good news of who you are and what you've done penetrate the deepest places of our hearts. And so, God, as we sit here in this moment, would you also give us an awareness of the deeper needs that we have? The wounds within us where we need you to bring the truth of the gospel. We need your help seeing those places, Lord. Would you help us? We thank you for your mercy towards us, that you are a God who stepped in to take the pain and suffering of our sins so that we could have life if we believe in you. We trust you, Jesus. We respond to you now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.